0: Hello, my name is Suzanne Heck. I'm leading the Flow Cytometry Core Facility at the Biomedical Research Center of Geis and St. Thomas' Hospital and King's College in London. And I'm here to give you an introduction into mass cytometry today. Mass cytometry is a version of flow cytometry, which we know is used for phenotype analysis for many years. However, mass cytometry has moved uh, phenotype analysis into the high-dimensional arena and made it a true omics tool. So, let's have a look why that is. When we normally phenotype complex mixtures, such as blood or bone marrow, we use a number of fluorescently conjugated probes to surface and intracellular markers. When we just look at the surface, it's called phenotyping. If we are looking at their functional state, we call it functional phenotyping. But what you also notice is our fluorochromes have some spectral overlap, and that limits the number of parameters that we can analyze in one panel. In traditional uh, panels and uh, cytometers, that's normally 12 to 14. And in the very highest-end instruments, we have 28 detection channels. However, in complex mixtures, as bone marrow, for example, we have many different cell types. And therefore, researchers are faced with a choice. Either they look broadly across many different cell types, but then do not have many markers left to um, um, evaluate their functional state, or they decide to very deeply dig into uh, one particular cell type, but at the expense of all the other players in this mixture. And this is exactly where mass cytometry has come in and truly makes a difference. Here we are no longer using fluorochromes, but we are labeling our probes with metal isotopes, meaning with metals that are conjugated to our antibodies, and we are detecting those in a mass spectrometer, which separates these by time of flight. The advantage being masses do not have a spectral overlap, and that allows us to put many more markers into one particular panel, and that means you can now go for very deep phenotyping. And that also results in high-dimensional data coming out of each one of those experiments, and it will allow us to analyze those data with high-dimensional data analysis tools, as we will see in the end. So, let's have a look at this technology in a bit more uh, detail. And I will give you first an overview of the presentation. We will look at the mass cytometry platform and the workflow. We will spend some time on the reagents and the instrument. Then we will briefly have a look at mass cytometry data and how they are analyzed in high-dimensional space. And we will also look at a bit of literature. So, the mass cytometry platform consists of three parts. The first one being our reagent system. We are actually using the same antibodies Uh, that we are also using for fluorescent flow cytometry, only we are tagging them with metal isotopes. And this results in metal-conjugated antibodies, and we are also using metal isotopes to label DNA, RNA, and, for example, also if we want to barcode our sample, that is possible. And currently, we have around 50 tags available at our disposal, most of them coming from the lanthanide family. At the moment, there is only one worldwide supplier of such reagents. And despite the fact that the catalogue now contains hundreds of different reagents, the repertoire is nonetheless limited. And you oftentimes end up making your own metal-conjugated antibodies. And I'll show you in a bit more... in a bit further down the line how that is done. The second part of our mass cytometry platform is obviously the instrument. And what you are seeing here is a picture of the latest generation of mass cytometer called a Helios. And um, it's based on a mass spectrometer. Mass specs have been around for a long time, and they are used to, for example, analyze trace element contaminations in complex mixtures. But this particular instrument has obtained a modified front end and allows us to introduce cells. When the technology came out the first time, the instrument was called a TOF, meaning a cytometer running by time of flight, TOF, And many people use this term also nowadays. Mass cytometry works with an argon plasma. This particular instrument has 135 detection channels, so we can add quite a few more tags if we want to and can. Um, but there are a few differences to a flow cytometer, for example. Given that it runs on a very hot argon plasma, it destroys the cells that are introduced in it, so that also means you can't sort them, you can't isolate them, after all. And we also are not getting a so-called scatter profile that allows us and see the cells. We need to apply a few tricks to make them visible. The good news is, we are obtaining a data format called the FCS standard format that we are used to from flow cytometry, and that also means we can apply the same kind of data analysis tools overall as we do to fluorescent flow data. But we are now looking at marker panels of 30 to 40, and that means traditional Boolean gating is not really Uh, giving us sufficient information out of our data set. And therefore, the third part of our platform are the high-dimensional data analysis tools, where we can have unsupervised clustering or dimensionality reduction approaches to analyze these data. I have listed a few of them here. There are many more out of there. And in the end, we will have a closer look at Wisner and Spade. For you as a user, it means that to analyze such an experiment, you oftentimes want to engage with a bioinformatician or learn how to do this yourself. And there are training programs available now. So, before you, as a user, start to run a mass cytometry experiment, you will have made a clear experimental plan, have designed your panel, have assigned metals to each probe, have eventually conjugated yourself, had a chat with a bioinformatician on how to analyze your data. And once all of that is clear and present, you will start to label yourself. So, on the left-hand side, you will see you uh, see our labeled cells, the gray uh, balls with the sticking out metal conjugated uh, antibodies, and these are then introduced into our apparatus. The first thing that brings the cells into the uh, mass cytometer is called a nebulizer that looks like... it's a glass structure that looks like a little spray pistol. And our cells in water are introduced via the nebulizer into the apparatus, and the nebulizer produces an aerosol of our cells. They are then migrating down the line in our um, interconnected structures until they end up in an argon plasma. The argon plasma has an average temperature of 7,500 Kelvin, and it atomizes and ionizes all our cell components. So, what we are having at the end here is an iron cloud. The iron cloud consists out of everything that we have put in uh, as tags in the beginning, as well as all the elements that our biological matter is made of. In the further course of the um, apparatus, meaning the cytometer, these ions are filtered further. Some low masses and some unwanted elements are removed. And at the end, we are left with the tags that we have added to label our cells from our panel of antibodies. And these are then introduced in the detection chamber, the time of light or TOF chamber, where they are separated by their mass-to-charge ratio. Lightest masses arrive at detector first, the heaviest arrive last. And from each cell that is introduced we are obtaining a so-called mass fingerprint or mass spectrum. So you see down here on the left-hand side three different color peaks corresponding to different masses, and each mass corresponds to one particular antibody probe. And these events are then integrated up, put into an FCS data file that we can then further on analyze. Okay, let's have a look at the reagents that we are working with. We are working with isotopes, and this is a periodic table, and highlighted in orange is a is the main tag group, so these are our lanthanides or rare earth metals. And um, when you look at the uh, highlighted elements, they have names on it, obviously, or abbreviations to be more precise. Um, let's say GD for galinium, TB for terbium, ER for erbium, and then there are numbers on them. Each number corresponds to the number of naturally occurring isotopes. So, when you, for example, isolate uh, terbium in nature, there is one single isotope available. When you isolate gadolinium, there are five different isotopes available. And for mass spectrometry, each one of those isotopes has been separated by... Um, in their mass, so we have five different gadoliniums with five different masses available that you can use. And therefore, out of those 13 elements, we are ending up with 37 different usable tags. You see up here in the periodic table of elements, we have made use of a couple of other elements that also are uh, good for us to use. And we start with the lowest mass of yttrium right now, at a mass of 89, and the highest mass of bismuth um, at 209. So, this is basically giving us the mass range that we are currently analyzing. these tags can all be added to your probes. So, why lanthanides? Lanthanides have the advantage that they are absent from biological matter, they are not radioactive, and they are also heavier than whatever um, composes biological matter, and they are in a mass range that we can detect on our instrument. The additional tags um, add up our toolkit to the 50 that I already mentioned, and all of those probes are added to our most of the time, antibody probes by chelating agents. Of the chelating agents, there are two different larger groups. The uh, commercial antibodies that are lanthanide tagged are all using a polymeric linker. So, we are seeing an antibody molecule that is covalently bound to a polymer chain that is loaded with different metals. Each one of those metals is basically one pure metal isotope with one defined mass. So, let's say this has mass 150 conjugated to CD45. And um, shown here is the structure of such an element. And I would like to point out two particular entities. There's a so-called meleamide linker. This maleimide linker is later on used to conjugate this loaded polymer to your antibody. And... This is basically one part of the later, and there are a number of repeats to that. Commercial antibodies use a polymer called the X8 polymer, which has 22 such repeats. That means you can, at most, pack 22 um, isotopes per um, polymer chain. And on each antibody, we can conjugate three to four such polymer chains, and that leads us to something around 80 different isotopes per antibody as our label. This particular polymer works for all the lanthanides, but it doesn't work for some other metals that we can also use. And for those, we are using a different uh, chelator, um, DOTA. We can use it, and the DOTA has the difference um, that we can bind one single metal isotope per molecule, and we can normally bind th- three to five such M-DOTA molecules per antibody. That means we have less metal labeling density, meaning the reagents that are resulting from those are less sensitive and they are good for highly expressed antigens or signal barcoding. coding. In addition to that, we have um, reagents for cell identification. To identify a cell, we don't have a scatter profile, but to identify a cell in mass cytometry, we are using a natural iridium that has been conjugated also to an intercalator, which can uh, basically intercalate into your DNA. Every cell that has a cell nucleus and is intact will have iridium intercalating in it, and this allows us later on to identify a cell event. In addition to that, we need to label dead cells. Dead cell removal is very important in cytometry in general and absolutely essential in mass cytometry because we are looking at 30-plus dimensions and dead cells bind anything unspecifically, so we would get lots of false-positive events. For dead cell labeling, we have two metals that are pre- predominantly used. One of them is rhodium, of a mass 103, or cisplatin. Both of those can bind to dead cells. And uh, before you are labeling your cells with your um, antibody cocktail, you are tagging the cells that are dead, so they are later on excluded from your analysis and will not give you false-positive results. So, once you have uh, your probes all available, you can stain your cells. I have produced us a small panel here, a panel of rhodium-103 to remove dead cells, iridium to label our DNA nucleus, and three different antibodies, masses 89, 145, and 170, tagging CD45 for all lymphocytes, CD3 for all T-cells, and CD4 for all t helper cells. So once you have this cocktail, you will have your cell um, solution. We have four cells here as an example. One of them on the top left is dead. It has a porous membrane. So when we are tagging the sample with rhodium, the cell will bind rhodium. All the others won't. After that, we will stain with our antibody cocktail and they will bind to the, to the cells according to the presence of the specific epitopes we want to label. So now we have a labeled sample. Then we will fix and stain. It's very important to fix and stain with aldehyde because later these cells will go into water, so we need to structurally the preserve them really well. Finally, we will add iridium to label the DNA. And this is actually our cell labeled. And the last thing that we are adding is something called EQ beads. EQ beats is a mixture of four different beats um, of different masses, ranging from 140 to 175, and they are used to normalize our data. During the day, the instrument shows a certain instrument drift, and to not have this impacting on the data intensity of your actual data points, we, ha- we run these beats alongside and we normalize the data later on before we put them into high-dimensional data analysis. The next thing that we need to then look at is how our cell migrates through the instrument. So, I'm showing you the passages... uh, the stages of passage in a mass cytometer. We are starting with the sample introduction. We have already seen the nebulizer and ending up with the torch at the very end. These are parts that are still outside. You can see them when you come into a lab. And our cells are at this uh, stage at atmospheric pressure. We are now moving them into the instrument, and we are moving them into the vacuum in that process. Initially, they come via a number of cones into uh, the focusing and uh, iron filter um, part of the um, instrument. Here, we remove some unwanted particles and also focus them. Once that has happened, they come into the TOF chamber. And finally, the data that have been detected at the detector are amplified and stored as an FCS data file. Okay, so let's have a look at all of them in a bit more detail. First, we are looking at the sample introduction part. Um, In the modern cytometers, the modern mass cytometers, uh, we have a sample introduction port. Our samples are put into water and then they are pressurized by argon gas, migrate through a sample line into the nebulizer at a relatively low speed of only 30 microliters a minute. That also runs at a a density of half a million cells, roughly. So, we do not introduce many events per time. This is one other very big difference to flow cytometry. Mass cytometry is quite slow. In flow cytometers, you normally run dozens or hundreds of samples within a day. Here, we are rather talking about 8 to maybe 12 samples a day. Once our cells are migrating into the sample line, they come into the nebulizer, this little spray chamber that produces an aerosol. And they are produced... that aerosol is produced also by using argon gas, as is through the entire apparatus that we are seeing here. And then they move into the spray chamber. In the spray chamber, the cells are dried down a little bit, and our cloud is also reduced and narrowed down a bit more before they move on into the torch and into the argon plasma. It needs to be said that this um, introduction process is not extremely efficient. You lose around 50% of the cells that you are introducing. So, for every million events that you are introducing, you shouldn't expect more than half a million data points. Finally, when our cells have reached the R1 plasma, Um, They are very quickly vaporized, atomized, and ionized. So, within the torch, we have an argon plasma. And I will show you in a minute a real-life picture how that works. Before you actually run your sample, the plasma needs to be started and stabilized. So, don't get a shock about too much of the detail. So, what you are seeing here is a real-life picture of a torch. The very end of this torch will be enclosed by a so-called RF load coil. And when you start the plasma, argon gas begins to flow. There is an ignition pin that produces an, an initial ignition, but then the plasma is self containing because this RF load coil produces a high radio frequency field that basically indu- induces the argon gas to form a plasma, a stable plasma. In real life, it looks like that. So we are seeing here the end of a torch. This is the argon plasma, and you can see here how this argon plasma and also your iron cloud moves down, because what you are seeing here is already the, sec- the next part. This is the so-called sampler clone, and this is what sucks in your iron cloud into the instrument and brings it then into, um, begins to bring it into a vacuum. So the iron passage to orientate you again, we are here having your RF load coil. We are having here our iron cloud. And this is basically the first uh, part, basically, that takes your cell in. That's the so-called sampler cone. And behind that are two more cones, meaning metal structures that suck in your sample. They are called the skimmer and reducer. In real life, they look like this and like that. They are basically right next to each other. And together, they cool down the sample and they reduce the um, pressure from atmospheric pressure, where it comes from to 10 to the minus 4 bar, about, and bring your samples that way into the apparatus. Why are we producing a vacuum? Later on, we want to measure the masses of each of our particles, and we would like to be sure that the trajectory of these particles to our detector is reproducible. So what must not happen is there must not be any other molecules about there where, where our ions can actually bump into, and such other things could eventually be the p- molecules coming out of air. So we are working in, in vacuum, so we can have an actual... Um, accurate TOF measurements. Finally, after we have moved through all of our cones. Again, to orientate yourself, we are now uh, entering the ion filter optics. The first thing is our uh, optical lenses. They will turn all the charged particles um, in a 90-degree angle, and all the uncharged items... uh, uh, uncharged ions, as well as uh, any photons that have entered, are removed, so they are not producing a signal. Whatever is left of our cloud is now making it into the high-pass ion optic, also called a quadruple filter. Right now, we have all ions that basically make our cells, our antibodies, as well as the tags. They have, however, different masses. In this quadruple filter, we have four metal rods. And between those metal rods, we have applied an electromagnetic field. And this field induces our ions to oscillate, meaning they will begin to swing. Heavier ions make it through this high-pass ion optic to the other side. Lighter ones swing a bit more, and at some point in time, they are making contact with the oppositely charged pole and are removed. After that, we only have certain masses left, and we can actually, by tuning this electromagnetic field, you can actually choose what masses make it through. Um, In our case, we are starting to detect masses 89, and that um, our measurement range is a bit wider. So now we have basically left only the tags that we have added to our probes. These tags are then introduced into the TOF chamber. They enter via a slit, which is also one other function of the quadruple filter. It basically narrows our ion cloud or our ion stream in such a way that they fit through the slit. And all the ions that are basically coming from our previously tagged probe are now making it into this particular part of our instrument. Here we have very high vacuum. Every 13 microseconds, a portion of, elect- uh, of ions is thrown in and then it basically migrates along the trajectory first down and then up or regulated by charge until they are hitting the detector. Initially, we have a mixture. At the detector, they arrive in the order of their masses, because the ions that we are bringing in have the same charge, so the difference between them is their weight. And lightest ion travel the fastest, so they arrive at the detector first. In our example, that would be the 89 uh, corresponding to CD45. And the heaviest mass would be iridium, 191 so that would be our nucleus. The detector counts... For a given amount of time, each one of those masses, the next one arrives, and it integrates those counts up, and so on and so on. So when we have, for example, two different cells, let's say the first one um, has bound CD45, iridium, and rhodium, so this is a dead lymphocyte, um, then uh, a dead leukocyte, sorry. Um, This is a cell that we later on will exclude from our analysis. The next one has um, positive signals for DNA, 45, 3, and 4. So, this is a live T cell, a live helper T cell, to be more precise. And this is something that we later on want to analyze. So, at the end of this, we have mass fingerprints, and all the intensities of these peaks are integrated up and put into your FCS data file. So, when you come into the mass cytometry facility and your data are running, you will not see any dot plots, as you might see it in a normal, traditional flow core. But you will see something like this. This is referred to as a rain plot. On the x-axis, if you so one on top, you will see all the masses that have been acquired open. If we have had a, a CD marker in one of our channels attached, it will be noted. This is done by your facility. And on the y-axis, you have the number of pushes, meaning how many ions have been pushed into the top chamber at a precisely given amount of time. You will also notice that there are some areas where you have densities showing up and... Each one of those areas actually corresponds to a cell event. Down here, we are seeing the traces for Iridium-191 and 193. So, that means there has been a nucleus, and that means this has been a cell. Everything that lines up with the Iridium is considered the markers of this particular cell event. In here, you will notice we have CD45, CD3, and CD4. So, this has been a T helper cell. In the line below, you notice, for example, there is no CD4 expression, and there is no signal for CD4. So, this hasn't been the cell, so, but this might have been something else. Um, in between, you will also see that there is a little bit of signal, for example, in this channel, 138 bion. This is background, and barium is present in almost all samples. It comes from many different sources. It shows up in our mass range. Ballium can come from soap, it can come from uh, glassware, it can come from any of the buffers or your cell freezing medium. But this amount of background is completely acceptable and it will later on not have an impact on our data. So, once we are done, we will have as raw data a text file and an FCS file. And what we are then needing to do is we need to clean up our data as we do that always for everything. But in particular, when you want to do high-dimensional data analysis, you need to remove certain things. The first thing that we are doing is gating on DNA, meaning has there been a nucleus, versus the event length, which corresponds to how long has it taken for this particular event to pass through or basically to finish being, being an ion cloud. And things that are stuck together have longer event lengths and things that are... um And also have usually higher DNA content and things that are broken apart but might have bound some DNA still, will have a lower iridium label and we will remove all of these. These are normally giving you your intact cells. Then, in our mixture, remember we still have the EQ beads, but we don't want to analyze them, they are just bead particles. So we will remove those and the channel that is exclusive to the beads is channel 140, so we will gate out all events that are DNA positive and not positive for beads. So we have cleared out the beads. Then the next thing is... All events that are staining positive for our dead cell marker in this particular example, that was this platin, are also removed. Positive, uh, cell, uh, positive events are dead cells. We don't want those in our analysis. And then finally, we will see which of those cells are CD45 positive. So we have cleaned up our data so they are live, not beads, hopefully intact CD45 positive cells. And these pre-cleaned-up cells are now moving into high-dimensional data analysis, as we can see. So now that we have our cleaned-up data, we are ready to analyze them. But remember, we have 35 or 40 or even more dimensions now to analyze. And this poses gives us a bit of a challenge. So we need different ways of analyzing our data to illustrate that. When you are analyzing two parameters in a sample, you are good with one plot that looks at both dimensions. If we are looking at a staining that has three parameters, we need three plots in the end. If we are moving already to a 9-parameter panel, as many flow cytometry panels do, we would theoretically need 36 different plots, and many people actually don't look at all of them at once. But we are now looking at 30-plus markers, and a 32-parameter panel will result in 496 plots, so close to 500 different plots, and nobody is able to analyze data like that. Now that we have data with such uh, high dimensionality, we are going to use algorithms to analyze our data. The very first one that has been used to analyze mass cytometry data is called SPADE. It was also part of the seminal publication of the mass cytometry technology. And SPADE does two things. It clusters your data into groups, as you can see here, and produces those groups of clustered events into a so-called SPADE or progression tree. Before doing so, it does something called downsampling. So, let us assume you have a quarter million of events of a complex mixture with 33 markers. There will be some populations that will be very frequent and others, like, for example, stem cells in bone marrow, that are very real. To not drown out the real uh, cell populations in the big ones, we are removing from those a couple of events and put them to the side in a basket. The downsampled part of sample is then used to look at how similar are the expression patterns on the remaining cells using all of our uh, 30-sum markers uh, that we have in our panel. This will result in a um, distribution that looks like that. So, let us assume this bit here, this branch here, are our T cells. They are relatively far away, let's say, from our B cells, which are also not related to each other. inside the T-cell branch, we have a population over here. Let's assume these are our CD4 T-cells, our T-helper cells. And a subset thereof also expresses a marker called CD45RA, making those into a group of naive T-cells. So, when you spin this further with 30-plus dimensions, you will get quite a number of different groups of cells that are then depicted in a spade tree in form of a node. And... The closer these nodes are to each other, the more related the cells in this individual node are to each other. The further away, the less related they are. Finally, we take all the data that we have initially put to the side back and put them back into our now-produced spay tree, so they can distribute according to their density. You are ending up with a spay tree looking like that, so you have your populations distributed in different nodes. The size of the node depicts how many events are in this particular group. And when you look at the next one, the intensity of this bait node depicts the expression level of a particular marker. So, in this first paper that came out, uh, the uh, group around uh, Sean um, Bendel has taken human bone marrow, has stained it with a total of 33 different markers, out of which 13 are surface markers. And on top of that, the bone marrow had been stimulated in the presence or absence of a number of inhibitors to elicit signaling, in particular here, down the phosphosignaling pathway. So, we have 18 functional and 13... Um, surface markers, this number of markers was absolutely impossible until that moment. And it will allow us to do a few things that were not present uh, possible before. So, let's first of all look at the surface markers. The surface markers have been used to reproduce the non-linear relationships in bone marrow. And we know that there are stem cells. They are sitting pr- quite high up in the tree. And we have our lymphoid branch, T cells, B cells, and K cells. We have our myelid branch with the monocytes, the dendritic cells, and down here, as an almost separate group, we have our red blood cells. What you are seeing here is basically the reconstructed bone marrow um, developmental hierarchy highlighted by the marker CD45. CD45 is expressed on fairly much all of those cells, but at different expression levels, except for our red cells, they are negative for CD45. So blue cold means low expression, red hot means high expression. If you are looking at a different marker, for example, CD3, you will highlight... see this highlighting up the T-cell part of the branch, and it is pretty much absent almost everywhere else. So this is how a spray tree looks like. Then this has been 13 markers, so theoretically you could have done the same thing with uh, normal fluorescent flow cytometry, but we still have lots of channels left. So now the next thing we have been doing is looking at 18 different signaling markers. And I'm showing you one example here. We are looking at uh, the the signal call... um, uh, a phosphorylation event on phosphoERC, an intracellular signaling molecule, which you can stimulate with pma unomycin. pma unomycin is a stimulus that activates pretty much every single signaling pathway in your cell. So, all of the cells are highlighting after stimulation with pma unomycin. When you, on the other hand, stimulate via the B-cell receptor, BCR, only the B-cell uh, branch will light up, while all the other cells um, in your bone marrow stay silent. If you then add an inhibitor, dasatinib, this will inhibit back the signal on your B-cells, while it doesn't do anything for PMA unomarsin, because it's not a specific inhibitor for this particular uh, branch, but it inhibits the B-cell receptor. So, why is this so great? This is only one example, only one signaling molecule. But you can look at all the different cell types in bone marrow at the same time. So you can do systems analysis for the very first time. And if you are imagining that you want to stratify patients or you want to develop a drug, you have for the very first time the chance to do an unbiased analysis and look at every player in the field all at once. And maybe then later on narrow down to the few markers that you want to characterize further. So, this was done with spade. The second algorithm that is fairly uh, widespread is called Wissner. And Wissner does not do clustering. It does dimensionality reduction. So, every cell basically stays in the mixture. It's not formed... basically put into small groups. But... The very first thing here that happens is it looks at all the markers and it calculates how similar is each cell to the other neighboring cell and then puts them down into a two-dimensional space. So what you are getting is something that looks very much like a very big two-dimensional dot plot. To give you an idea how a Wisner plot looks like, let's go a bit further. So first of all, we start with something familiar. This is a two-dimensional dot plot, and we have gated in our CD8 positive cells over here. If you depict this alongside all the other events and markers in a Wissner plot, you get a map that looks like that. We will have tisna 1 and tisna 2 as uh, axis markers, and you will see groups or islands of cells that are more or less close to each other. You can highlight the expression of CD8 again as you could do it on the spade plot, and you can see this group here is positive for CD8, and they form a separate island in this particular sample. Um, different other islands are not positive for CD8, so they won't light up. You see all of the cells in your mixture depicted into different islands. And how these islands look like and how many they are depend on the sample, and also how many markers you have used. It has to be said for Spade and Wisner that um, Every time you run these algorithms, they produce a different tree or a different spade map. So this is not reproducible in its outlook. It does; It is reproducible in the uh, readout of the total frequencies. But how these islands are distributed or how your tree looks like is not reproducible. In case of Wisner, as long as you run 10, 20 samples together at the same point in time, all of those will fall into the same... Um, Wissner map, so you can at least compare alongside there. But to be honest, most people that are wanting to extract real data out of that take the data coming out of the Wesner algorithm and put them into a heat map where they compare expression levels of certain parameters versus particular patients or particular treatments, and this makes it much more manageable. To give you an example how this has been used, this particular group has been analyzing patients with suffering from a plastic anemia, and these people get treatment with um, immunosuppressive drugs. So, they have found a marker in the T-regulatory cells, and T-regulatory cells are characterized by expressing CD25, the transcription factor FOXP3, and not expressing CD127. So this is just a proof that we are truly looking at the T regulatory cells in the sample. And then we have compared this on our different patients groups. So our control group were the healthy donor cells. You can see on, on the last column here, these are, this is focusing our, on our regulatory C cells. And you might see that there are two different nodes or groups, healthy donor cells have a lot of what was referred to as T-regulatory cells B. They had all of the markers in here, and then a couple more. And they have very little of what is co- referred to as T-regulatory cells group A. Responders that are not re- uh, responding... To, uh, patients that are not responding to treatment have literally no t Bs, lots of t As, while those patients that originally also looked like that but are responding to the drug begin to shift more and more towards the healthy phenotype and develop more and more of the T regulatory cells B, the panel to analyze this contained a total of thirty-seven markers, and this phenotype or also this biomarker has been stable, so this has been reproduced, and the group could identify a new biomarker, a predictive biomarker for treatment of their patients. This is something that has been also a hallmark of high-dimensional cytometry or mass cytometry. It has allowed us to identify biomarkers much faster, because we take an unbiased view on our entire dataset, and we can then hone down on those that are really specific. To identify, finally, the cells that are truly of interest, not even 10 markers were needed out of the total mixture of 40. With this, I hope I could explain you how mass cytometry works, how to set up an experiment, and also what the power of this technology can do for your research. If you would like to learn a bit more about it, there is a wealth of literature, many review articles, but also a good book, coming out of the group of Gary Nolan at Stanford University, where mass cytometry has actually started. And below that, I have listed one of the... quite a few review articles on high-dimensional data analysis and um, it gives you an idea of how to process high-dimensional cytometry data, which is quite important, as you might agree. With that, I would like to thank you and goodbye.